I am Citizen 44. You are listening to Citizen 44 with Mark Aaronsberg. There's a story to sell, and it ain't all bees and honey. Hearts to break and blood to spill, and pain to inflict. That's why they call me the love addict. Love addict. Love addict. Hey everybody, Mark Ehrensberg here. Welcome to Citizen 44. This is show number 106. My guest today is Emily Roger. Emily is a two-time world champion cyclist and a survivor of two major accidents where she was struck on her bike by a car. Not just once, but twice. She has great energy, and she's here to take her experiences and help others on their path to success and happiness. I have been here in Kwangai a little over a month after leaving Saigon. And everything is pretty perfect, I would say, for the most part. Leanne and I are huddling up together in her little treehouse above a very beautiful tropical garden. We've got a nice routine. It's all good. My dad's in his new place in Woodland Hills. He loves it. First day he was there, he meets the youngest Academy Award-winning actress Tatum O'Neill, daughter of famous actor Ryan O'Neill. So my dad had a conversation with her, and you know he's kind of figuring the place out. I called him the other night. Actually, he called me the other night or morning. Said that he's been eating a little better. He's dropped about eight pounds. Spoke to Rich Reese a little bit. He's out there in Tennessee doing his thing. He's now in a band, growing his vegetables, cooking his vegan food, doing his thing. My kids are good. Sam's back in Ashland, staying with his mom and his birth mother. He's got his truck. He's doing his own work on the truck. He started his own power wash business. He's doing really well. Zoe's doing well. She's working hard at school at OSU. Yeah, I'm pretty much hanging out with Lean Ann, playing with the kids, going for my daily walks, taking a shit ton of photographs. We got Emily Roger on the show. Here we go. Tell your daddy, tell your mommy, we're all riding down the big tsunami. Them billionaires and all them commies, we're all riding down the big tsunami. Everything ends up out of your hands and back into the wave. Everything ends up out of your hands. There's nothing you can save. Tell your guru, tell your swami, we're all riding down the big tsunami. Get out the rye bread, that's a grand salami. We're all riding down the big tsunami. Everything ends up out of your hands. Don't hold on too tight. Everything ends up out of your hands. You're gonna lose this fight. Joni knew it, and so did Bobby. We're all riding down the big tsunami. Willie knew it, and so did Johnny. We're all riding down the big tsunami. Everything ends up out of your hands and back into the wave. Everything ends up out of your hands. There's nothing you can say. Hey, Emily. Hello, Mark. 
Thank you so much for being on the C44 podcast. Really appreciate you taking some time. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. I'm sure you've told your story over and over and over again. I've actually listened to you on a couple other podcasts, and your story is incredible. I'm sure it has a lot to do with where you are now professionally, that you've leveraged all this trauma to help other people, which is fantastic. It's unbelievable the path that we're guided down to experience some really uncomfortable things sometimes but it really makes us much more powerful in our ability to help others who are suffering. So I appreciate that you've gone down this path and come out on the other side to enrich and enhance the lives of other people because you're now a professional life coach and assisting people with navigating the challenges of life and helping them to achieve a better quality of being in this short existence that we all have. Yeah. And to that, I'm a trained executive coach. But that term of executive coaching or life coaching, to me, coaching is coaching. And coaching is something that I can apply to anyone's life. And I apply it to all aspects of my life, of who I am professionally, personally. That title of coach really embodies the whole person. Quite often, I work with people who are executives or top leaders coaching certainly is not something that is solely for someone in an executive position. You've got certified so you can do this kind of more executive level work. But I know that other parts of your experience have played a significant role in empowering you with your own personal experiences, which I think probably transcends the psychiatric experience because it's more based on your personal life. And you having some really close to even death experiences where you've been in a place where you were uncertain of yourself, where you had emotional, physical, and mental dysfunctionality going on in your life, where you weren't sure of who you are and what you were doing here. And that's an amazing place to be once you get to the other side. I would imagine your life is filled with gratitude because of everything that you've received, good or bad. They're all just experiences that amount to who we end up becoming. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard too much about your childhood and growing up in Canada. What formulated the human being that you are? What informed you? What were your early influences? So can you tell me about early years? Yeah, I can. And speaking about my past experiences and coming through it, I always want to be very clear that I'm still going through it. I still have moments of self-doubt. I still have those moments of being uncertain about myself, second-guessing, am I good enough to be an executive coach? Or why does anybody even want to hear my story? Those thoughts still come up. And to me, those thoughts are normal and those thoughts are okay. It's then what I choose to do with those thoughts. And I work with a coach and I will always work with a coach because I still have my own biases. I have my own blind spots that pop up in life and that it really is this constant journey. Have I overcome a lot of it? Yeah, absolutely. But there's still so much more work, which really is a lifelong journey. Well, you're a human being. Yeah. But what's beautiful is you can admit your vulnerability and you're willing to not be so strong that you stop yourself from feeling and being your authentic self. Yeah. And of course, you're always going to be going through life and you'll always be faced with things that you have to manage and navigate through. But 
at one time you were a little girl and none of these things existed as they do now. And I'm curious about your family life, about your beginnings. Where specifically did you grow up in Canada? I grew up in New Brunswick, so East Coast Canada. I have three sisters, family of four girls, and I'm the second youngest. My oldest sister has Down syndrome. My parents divorced when I was five. And when I was a little girl, like I remember grade one, grade two in particular, I was so shy, so shy to the point that I would not even speak in school. And my teachers thought that I could not talk. So they would send me to speech therapy. And I have the most vivid memories of sitting in the little library room with the speech therapist and her showing me these cue cards of animals and me having to say what they were and feeling so stupid because I thought, I know what these animals are. I just don't want to say. And at the time, I didn't really understand what it felt to be shy or what it felt to not have confidence. So in my mind, I just began to think, gosh, I am really dumb. So I just shouldn't speak. And I certainly had a hard time pronouncing certain letters. So there were things that I would just kind of avoid saying. I remember the S's and the Q's and the R's and the lady always showed the picture of the squirrel. <laughs> and it was the hardest one for me to say. And yeah, that was very much of kind of what those early years were like. Just sit quietly, don't say anything, don't put yourself out there so that you look stupid. And even thinking about my sister Jessica, the one who has Downs, brings up emotion in me of seeing how often that she was made fun of for the way that she spoke, the way that she was, and thinking, gosh, I don't also want to be that. So it was that thing of stay small, don't let people see you, don't let people hear you. So there certainly was a span in my childhood that had a lot of really good memories and a lot of really good times but a lot of really difficult times as well. But now looking back, so many of those things have helped build me to be the person that I am today. And even when I was racing and I got into cycling at an older age, the age of 27, and being able to draw on these skill sets that I had of being able to find ways to believe in myself, showing up despite not thinking that I was good enough, or not thinking that I was capable, and that all of those years as a child really did shape me to be the woman that I am today. How did this play out for you through your primary school years and then on into high school? Probably junior high was kind of where I would have started to step in more to that confidence. And, you know, it's funny because I was the farthest thing from a quiet person at home. <laughs> I was the loud, obnoxious, annoying sister. But academically, it was a struggle for me. And I think it was a struggle because I put so much expectation on myself. I looked at other people who I thought were smarter than me. And I just compared myself to them. Or I didn't fully utilize my learning style and didn't understand what my learning style was. And throughout the years, 
I started to kind of tap into and understand more of that. After high school, I went to school for dental hygiene. And it was in that first six months of school that I finally realized I'm actually really intelligent. I'm doing really well here. I think for one, I was interested about what I was learning. And secondly, I started taking off those layers of expectation that I had on myself and really figuring out how do I learn? And just going with that and not comparing myself to the way that other people learn and graduated with honors, did extremely well. But yeah, it wasn't until the age of 20 that I felt smart in any way. Well, that's a failure of the education system, not you. You were not identified. There's a great book by Aldous Huxley called Island. I highly recommend, which is this utopic story about an island where they educate children properly. They identify their learning styles, put them in groups, and they address the individual nature of how people operate instead of trying to group everybody together and have one overarching mechanism for teaching, which obviously is a failure because we don't identify the individual and work with those people in that way. And then you take that on as your own failing, Mm -hmm. which is very sad because you're just a child. Why should you have to identify how you learn what's best for you? This is an institution that is set up to enrich you. It was not your fault ever at any point. This is the failure of society. We fail our children continuously, which is why they end up in places that they don't belong. Yeah. And it's very sad because we would probably have a much smarter populace if, in fact, we identified children for their strengths and not their weaknesses, help nurture that and make them stronger. And I'm sorry that you did come from this place of weakness, but in the end, it probably worked out for you because you did finally have an educational experience where you could see yourself succeed and understand yourself more. But just think, it took you 20 years to get there. I can't even imagine if some special teacher saw you for you and went about things a different way, how your path may have changed completely. Yeah. And with that being said, I remember my grade two teacher, Mrs. Hansen. She gave me a book called The Little Engine That Could. And it's about a train that is smaller than the other ones, but it needs to get up this mountain. And it always says to itself, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And finally, it gets up that mountain. And I've always thought about that book. And there were so many times even in my racing career when going up a super long climb and feeling like I want to just stop. (laughs) But that little voice of, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, and staying with that. So there might have been failures in the education system, but also a lot of good, certain aspects that I would not wish upon anyone. But now I have gratitude for all of those 12 years of being in the public school system because now I am able to relate to other people, able to show empathy to other people, better understand other people's learning styles, then helping to kind of partner and facilitate with people and and helping them tap into what they need. In what way can they learn? In what way can they fully bring out their intelligence that is in each and every one of us. 
Okay. So you become a dental hygienist. How long did that career last? Eight years. What happened to change your career? I was the one in the dental chair. (laughs) Ah. Yeah, I was hit by a car while riding. I had taken six months off of work post-accident and tried to go back to work part-time, but dealing with a brain injury, dealing with other physical injuries and a lot of mental struggles, I just wasn't able to continue. And you were struck by an automobile while you were riding a bicycle, correct? Yeah, I was. Were you in training or was this recreational riding? I had just started racing, so I was out for a training ride, and a woman ran a stop sign and T-boned me, and I was airlifted to a trauma hospital with a head injury and significant facial damage, broken jaw, lost my top teeth, and a lot of other injuries as well. And here I am eight years later, still going through treatment. But yeah, that was why I chose to leave the dental hygiene career. Your teeth look great, by the way. I mean, you have all of them now. Well, thank you. I'm actually wearing a fake tooth, which I just got yesterday. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. This is the debut. I certainly have a lot more treatment to come. I'm still in the early stages of this particular procedure that I'm having done where I decided to have my front tooth extracted, had a significant bone graft. So now I have to wait for six months for the bone to fully integrate. And then I'll go for a dental implant, new crowns and all of that kind of stuff. So It's a slow, drawn-out process, so I am far from physically recovered from this. I can't imagine how much rehabilitative work that you've gone through. I know you've had several surgeries that are ongoing, reconstruction, and that must have taken a lot out of you physically, emotionally, and must continue to be a drain on your life and reminder of the incident that occurred. It's not like you can ever get this out of your mind. It's always present for you. Mm-hmm. You consider it as kind of a driving force for you now. It plays a part in every aspect of your life, I would imagine, other than maybe when you're out fly fishing and you can completely let go of it. But other than that, I mean, it's something that you have to deal with day to day, correct? Yes and no. Is it a driving force for me? No, I think it's just a part of me. And I've had two very significant cycling accidents where both involved vehicles. And speaking about the facial trauma and the impact that it had on me, I recently had a documentary filmed on me where I did speak a little bit more publicly about what I was struggling with for many years and still at times struggle with. And those were really dark years for me. And it's interesting, you had said, well, you look good. You must be all physically healed. And all I cared about was that people perceived me as being strong, perceived me as overcoming this accident and coming out as a strong woman, a cyclist, pure strength. That is all that I wanted people to see in me. Yet there was this other side that was in many ways, fueling why I wanted people to see me as that, because I didn't want them to see me as the person who was struggling, you know, struggling with a brain injury, overcoming a brain injury, learning how to even deal with a head injury, let alone like accept that I had it, struggling with PTSD, struggling with depression, having moments, many moments where I wished that I didn't even survive because it would have been so much easier. That is what I was actually 
going through. But yeah, people's perception, as long as they saw me as strong, then I felt strong. And that's all that I cared about. But that was a facade. That's all you cared about because you didn't want to deal with you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But of course, you ended up having to. How did you end up coming to terms? Because your PTSD was ever present. It's not like it was going to go away just because you ignored it. What were the steps you took to heal yourself? The fishing was a part of getting out in nature and detaching yourself, putting yourself into a non-corrosive environment, even taking people a little bit out of the equation and being in nature. I'm a firm believer that it changes people's lives. Mm -hmm. Taking a 45-minute walk in the park can give you incredible relief and feed you in a way that nothing else can. Yeah. But before you discovered the fishing, what were the steps you were taking once you decided that you needed to address yourself, that you needed to actually deal with it? How did you start coming to terms with that? And what were some of the measures that you took in order to start healing yourself? There was a lot of different measures that I took, but I think that that kind of leap into acceptance of that moment of, yeah, I need to work through some really deep stuff here came because I was so tired of trying to be this person that I wasn't. And even more so than that, I hated the fact that people were seeing me for something that I wasn't. And what message was I giving off to the world? Around that time, I had a friend who was in a very significant accident as well. And I got together with him one day for coffee. And he was like, Emily, how do you deal with this brain injury? How did you deal with that trauma? And I sat across the table from him thinking, wow, here is this person who thinks that there is all these answers within me that I can give to him and that he'll be able to use to overcome what he is going through. Yet in reality, I was sitting across the table from him wondering the exact same thing. And I felt like I was being such a fraud and I was not okay with continuing to live my life that way. So I called my mom, my mom's a therapist, and she saw all along what was happening. And we had many conversations about it, but I pushed her away and disregarded it. And I called her and said, I need help. And immediately booked an appointment with a psychologist and booked some appointments with the Barrow Neurological Institute down in Arizona. And I made a commitment to myself that I was going to spend as much time training on my mental health, learning ways to deal with my PTSD as I was training for cycling and training for my upcoming next big race, which was a world championship event. I made a three-month commitment to myself that I was going to do that. And I started seeing the results and seeing how much better I felt, seeing how much lighter I felt. And it kept me going and keeps me continuing that. It's a long process and it's a hard process, but it is way less hard than trying to be this person that looks strong. Well, do you think that your accidents and injuries may have forced you to deal with some things that were pre-existing? It's not just new injuries. We're all traumatized. We're all damaged goods. Nobody's parents know what they're doing for the most part. Did that bring up some things for you that you needed to address later, which helped? Maybe the trigger or the cause was that accident, but 
not only did you have to deal with your PTSD of such a traumatic event in your life, but you had to deal with yourself going all the way back at the same time. Yeah, for sure. It certainly does go deep. So many of those things are so deeply rooted within us and they do all kind of build upon one another. And yeah, that opened the door for me to explore more areas of my life. Give myself that feeling of safeness that it's okay to start unpackaging some things that I had compartmentalized throughout the years and that I can go at it at my own pace. It's up to me. For cycling, how many times I was knocked down and not just like, oh, I fell off my bike. No, being hit by a car and this feeling of, okay, here's another thing that's taken from me. Here I am, little Emily that doesn't have opportunities. Yeah, all of those past beliefs, whether they were true or not, because a lot of those weren't true, but in my mind, that was coming up. So it did. It triggered a lot. Yeah. And you're a two-time world champion cyclist. Yeah. Somebody gave you a bicycle, right? Mm-hmm. It was just kind of a love affair. It felt natural. You were one with this machine. Yeah. It's just a fascinating story that somebody handed you something and it clicked with you but you took it to an extreme and much later in life. It's not like you were trained early on. You were in your 20s before you started training and became a world-class cyclist, blowing people away that had spent their lives training to be where you were. Yeah. You know, I often wonder, gosh, what if someone had given me something different? What if someone had given me a guitar or a tennis racket? Would it have been the same? But yeah, you know what? I got on that bike and it felt natural. The first couple of times, no, I did not like it. I did not eat enough prior to doing a long, hard ride and uh, certainly had many of those moments. But yeah, the bike was this tool that really allowed me to tap into parts of myself that I never even really knew existed. And a part of that was the competitive side. And you gravitated towards that. I mean, you really ate that up. And I've seen photographs and video of you, and you really pushed the limits on that. You were in incredible physical shape, and you trained super hard, and you were incredibly motivated to the point of world champion. And that takes a lot of not just physical effort, but emotional effort and commitment. It's interesting that you say, what if somebody handed you a guitar or a paintbrush? Or was that the right time for you to receive something for you to start investing in? But it was a bicycle. And that brought a lot of joy to you. Mm -hmm. And the competition part's pretty interesting. It's something that you needed to work out. You needed to work through. And this was a vehicle, literally and figuratively, for you to go through this process. For sure. I think there's a reason for everything. Everybody can attach a label, God, whatever you want to call it. But there's clearly a collaborative experience happening here between us and whatever. And there are no accidents, in my opinion. Things happen. They're supposed to happen. And then we deal with them in whatever way we deal with them. Either they make us stronger or they don't, or they cripple us. Just last night, I watched the movie. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Unbreakable. Did you ever see that? No. I highly recommend it to you. It's a fantastic movie starring Bruce Willis. An odd tale about a superhero, but not in the sense that you would think. And I thought about you during this movie because, of course, there's a hero and a villain. And the villain was breakable. 
and the hero was unbreakable. But they both had their things. They both had emotional complexities. They both had to address traumas and being human. We all have to address and navigate this whole journey of being a human being. Yeah. But I also feel that you were on a path to become what you are now, which is someone who's gleaned a lot of incredible experience. And because of that experience, you even changed course, as it were, and decided to leverage all this experience and help others. How did you determine what you were going to do next? After my second accident, I let my broken bones heal four months. And six months later, I was racing again at the professional level. But I made the choice a few months after that this is not what life was about. Life was not about me chasing these circumstantial happiness wins. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I didn't like bike racing. I loved training, loved training. And I'm a very competitive person and I'm very competitive with myself, but I did not like competition against other people. So I chose to step back from it. You know, I often think, gosh, would I be still racing if that second accident hadn't happened? Possibly. But I'm glad I'm not. I'm glad that I made the choice that I did and that I'm doing what I am doing today. You know, I often look back at what made me be able to be this world-class athlete and this level of physical fitness and self-discipline and passion for that the physical aspect of sport. But the mental side, I think that that is what takes a great athlete and turns them into a superior athlete. So being able to now take the skill sets that I learned about myself through sport that really helped me to excel and wanting to draw those out in other people so that they not just excel in sports, but in every aspect of their lives in ways that are possibly far more valuable. How can you not just be a competent athlete, but how can you be a confident person? How can you feel fully capable, fully worthy in doing whatever it is in life that you choose to pursue? Because in my experience, my passions kind of shift a little. There's a bit of an ebb and flow to them. If some weeks I'm like, oh, really want to ride more. I'm not training for racing per se but I'm still very active. And there's some weeks that I'm like really into that. I want to ride lots. And then next week it's like, "Mm, maybe I just want to stay home and bake or spend more time fishing or spend more time, whatever. And there's all of these aspects of my life that I'm so passionate about. And I want to be that same person in every one of them. And I want to know that it is okay to pick and choose between them. Because none of those things are what determine who I am as a person. So being able to take those things and using them to empower other people, that is what really fuels me. It brings more joy to my life than any world champion title could ever give me. What kind of advice? Just some fundamental advice. I would encourage people to really be aware of the way that they're talking to themselves because we believe what it is that we tell ourselves and being so careful of our words, being so careful of our thoughts so that we're not holding ourselves back and just having that awareness. What about the way we speak to each other? That seems to be another thing that is really out of control. 100% I'm with you on that. Yeah always being careful and thinking about how do we feel about ourselves after we say it. 
And is that the way that you want to be feeling? I think that is incredibly important. I've seen on your Instagram, you clearly like baking cookies. <laughs> I do. I think you have a propensity for animal cookies and Christmas cookies. I saw those two seem to weigh heavy. <laughs> any theme, any theme, any holiday, any special birthday request. For me, baking cookies is a way to utilize creativity and show my love and appreciation for people. Well, you can tell by the incredible art that you create with those cookies that you're very passionate about it and that you love what you're doing. And I really appreciate you coming on the show and spending some time with me and telling your story. Well, I thank you. This has been a pleasure. Well, Emily, all the best to you and heal, heal, heal. And thank you for undergoing what you've gone through so you can be really well-equipped to help others. Thank you, Mark. Well, that's the show. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank Emily for her super candid, heartfelt life experience. She's really taken all of these challenges throughout her life and turned them into tools to really help and support other people in achieving their goals. So thanks, Emily. I don't know if you can hear, it's raining in the background a little bit. Rainy season starting to happen now. Cooling things off after four o'clock in the afternoon got the AC still on, but it's a little bit better than it is during the day. It's super hot and pretty moist out there. It's a very small community here and I love being here. It's great. I got the family here. Got a great place to live, have a lovely garden. My quasi father-in-law, super sweet. The whole family had a meal today in remembrance of his great-grandfather on the anniversary of his death. So we had a very nice meal with myself and Leanne, her sister, her sister's husband, their two kids, Leanne's brother, his wife, Ha, their two kids, and then her father and his wife. It was very nice. And then I went to the coffee shop, posted some photographs, did some stuff and some things. And uh, here we are, working towards retirement at 62 in 2024. Super excited about that. Citizen 44 with Mark Ahrensberg is a listener-supported presentation. You can listen to all shows on Amazon, Apple, CastBox, Stitcher, and a whole bunch of other places, evidently. Thanks so much for listening to the show. Really appreciate it. More shows coming up. All right. Take care of yourself. Much love. Bye-bye. Additional music for today's show provided by Gene Burnett, geneburnett.com. And Robbie Lindauer, RobbieLindauer.com. You can also find Citizen 44 with Mark Ehrensberg on Substack, along with update letters, photo galleries, and other really cool content. There are nine image libraries with high-res photos from Vietnam, Cambodia, China, Ashland, Oregon, and other cool places. You can download any images you want for personal use. All the photos are free. I just ask that you make a small donation to support the show and my artistic endeavors. MarkAaronsburg.substack.com Thank you, Sam, Zoe, and Val. I am Citizen 44. <laughs>